So every, uh, I think it's three times a year, we, we as a church like to take a uh, break from the normal routine of, of the kind of preaching that we're doing and focus in on some of the church values, just to put the values in front of us, to remind ourselves what they are. And it's not that these are descriptions of what we are so much as these are descriptions of what we'd like to be. This is kind of what we feel uh, God's heart is for the church in general and for this church in particular. Uh, And those values are things that we pray that will be true of us. And uh, as we think about them, there's a kind of a collection of them. There's 11. Don't expect you to memorize them, at least not in order. But this is the 11th one that we're thinking about. And uh, it's reaching out beyond ourselves in local and global mission. Reaching out beyond ourselves in local and in global mission. And like with all the other values, really, the reason that that's there is because it's what God is like. Our God is a reaching out beyond himself kind of a God. If he wasn't, then there would be no real impetus within us to do that because it makes no sense in this world. Last week, we thought about local mission. And we were thinking um, about that story in Luke 10 when the the lawyer comes to Jesus and and kind of tries to catch him out a little bit. And they're talking about how Jesus says we should love God and love our neighbor. And the lawyer says to Jesus, okay, so who's my neighbor? And and Jesus' response to that question, even though it was sort of a trick question, uh, we took as a helpful response to us asking the same thing but with different motives. When we think, okay, we want to reach out locally, Lord, who are our neighbors? Who do we reach out to? And so his answer to that lawyer was the story of the Good Samaritan. Remember the story where the man's going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, falls among thieves, gets beaten, left for dead, naked, stripped on the side of the road. And then along come two individuals, two likely-to-care types, religious types, the priest and the Levite. And instead of caring, instead of stopping, they keep going because they are self-concerned. They've got their own issues that they've got to take care of. And then the third person that comes along the road is an unlikely-to-care foreigner. And it turns out that this unlikely-to-care foreigner, this despised Samaritan, cares for that individual. And so Jesus told that story to the lawyer uh, to answer the question, who is my neighbor? And I suppose the answer to the question for us then is, who is it we're supposed to reach out to? Well, we are supposed to reach out in love to people who we see are in need, people that we can help. And so we thought about neighbors and we thought about loving them. We thought about the fact that neighbors may be unknown to us. They may be uh, unattractive in certainly the man's circumstances. That would have been most unattractive. They may be unrewarding to work with. They may be unresponsive or unfriendly, but they are the people that God loves. And so as extensions of God's love, we want to reach out and care for them. And what's it going to take? How do we do that? Well, again, we, we thought of four things. We thought about the fact that it takes time to build friendships. It takes proximity. We've got to get close to people. It takes resources. It's going to cost if we're going to be reaching out beyond ourselves instead of just serving ourselves. But most importantly, number four, it takes a love we do not have. And that's where we kind of finished last week, thinking about that Samaritan, the the one that the lawyer could not even name. You know, when he was asked, okay, so which one of these was a neighbor? He didn't say the Samaritan. He, He kind of avoided the word. That's how much he hated him. He said, I suppose the one that helped him. 
But that Samaritan wasn't just a a sort of a, a kind passing gentleman who did something nice. He went far and beyond, above and beyond anything that we can imagine. When we think about what he did, how he cared for him, the oil and the wine and so on, putting him in on his donkey and then leading him into town with no evidence that he isn't the criminal, uh, setting himself up for all sorts of misunderstanding, potentially that he would be hurt, that he would end up getting into all sorts of trouble. And he didn't do it anonymously. He said, I'm going to come back and pay the rest. And so it was extravagant. It was sacrificial. It was generous. And actually, it, it, it was far above anything that normal humans tend to muster. But it's exactly the kind of love that God shows. Extravagant self-sacrificial generosity. And so we finished last week thinking, okay, if we're going to reach out beyond ourselves in local mission, ultimately we've got to ask God to give us his love. We've got to fix our eyes, not just on the needs around us, but more than that, to fix our eyes on Jesus, just to see and be blown away by the love of God toward us, that it can then spill out through us to others. Now, before we move on to global, or as we move on to global mission, I don't want us to leave the story of the Good Samaritan behind too quickly, because there's something going on there that was quite shocking for the people listening, not just for the lawyer who couldn't say the words, the guy who helped him, not just for him, but even for the disciples, they're stood there listening to Jesus, and they would not have expected the hero of the story to be foreign. They might have, in their wildest imaginations, imagined that the guy beside the road in need might be foreign. I mean, that would be extravagant, wouldn't it? I mean, actually, they wouldn't have even thought that. They would have thought, okay, who's my neighbor, the people that live nearby? Maybe the people in my tribe. Okay, let's be wild. The whole 12 tribes of Israel. Is that my neighbor, Jesus? That's what they would have thought. But Jesus includes a foreigner. Okay, right, yeah, so there's a foreigner who's been hurt. We'll help a foreigner if that's the way you're going to be. And Jesus turns that whole thing upside down and says, no, I'm going to make the foreigner the hero just to make it stick in your throat. And that's something that we need to feel because every one of us as humans has a tendency to kind of care inwardly. Just as we care for ourselves as individuals, we also tend to care for our own type of people and we tend to naturally despise others. If you want to grab a Bible, um, go ahead, grab one, and we're gonna, I'm going to have you turn to one of two places. You can choose. That's how extravagant we're being today. You can choose where you turn, either Matthew 28 or Acts 1. I know choices in the middle of a sermon. It's kind of throwing you off, isn't it? You don't quite know where to go. I'm not going to ask you to read it out loud. So even if you end up in Zechariah, just look at your Bible and you know, pretend you know what you're doing. It's fine. But Matthew 28, if someone finds that and wants to shout out the page number, that'd be helpful. 835. 835. Or Acts 1. Anyone got a page number for Acts 1? 909. Not 693, just 909 for Acts 1 and 835 for Matthew 28. Okay. And this is... Two passages that really come at the end of Jesus' ministry. And what I want us to do this afternoon is put ourselves in the sandals of the disciples. Okay, I want us to join them on the journey they were on. And this is the end of the road. As far as their time with Jesus is concerned, 
These are two moments in time right at the end of those three years that have massive impact on the whole history of the church because this is Jesus commissioning, sending out his disciples. Okay, so probably familiar passages. In Matthew 28, page 835, you've got Jesus, verse 18, saying, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe everything that I have commanded you. And I am with you always to the very end of the age. And then, just a matter of days later, they're in Jerusalem or just outside Jerusalem. And Jesus is now literally uh, leaving on his kind of heavenly ascension elevator. However that miracle worked, you know, pressing H for heaven. He's about to go up. And he says to them in Acts 1 verse 8, Wait in Jerusalem until you receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. Then you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and, and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And then he went up to heaven with those words ringing in their ears. That was the end of their three years with Jesus. They knew what to do. They knew where to go. They knew something of what it would take. And if we had the time, we could trace the story of how the Holy Spirit working through those men transformed the world. In fact, that we're sitting here today, we're downstream from that. The gospel has gone to the ends of the earth, even sunny Chippenham. Okay, so that's kind of the end of the story. And I want you to keep your finger in the Bible. Don't try to uh, track with me. But I want to do something unusual for a few minutes. And I want us to go back and I want to think through the kind of experience those disciples had. Because if you go right back to pre-meeting Jesus, those disciples were very, very normal people. They grew up, most of them, in Galilee. Galilee was a region in the north of what we would call Israel that was really reclaimed land from the Gentiles. They'd sent Jews up there 100, 200 years before to kind of resettle it as a Jewish region. And so if you have people planted in that way, you always have a real zealous, patriotic, passionate kind of people. So the people up in Galilee, the Jews were not kind of wimpy Jews. They were passionate Jews. And so those disciples would have grown up in homes where mum might make a gentle comment, but dad wouldn't hold back. Every time there's a mention of the Romans and the occupying forces, they would have heard both barrels of what dad thought and what grandpa thought of the Romans. They would have grown up hearing stories from, think about the fishermen families, uh, hearing stories from dads and uncles and grandparents of of all the work they'd done through the night and all the work during the day and it's never ending and and no matter how much you do, then you still have to pay the Romans and, and all the tension that came with that. And it would have meant that they were passionately Jewish, but passionately anti foreigner The Gentiles were not viewed positively. Everybody who's non-Jewish is a Gentile, right? They're the nations. And the nations were not viewed in any way positively. Those, Those young men would have grown up in synagogue and going to synagogue school, and they would have heard the rabbis kind of stirring up the fervor for Israel. 
They would have gone into the workplace and they would have heard the tension and the vitriol coming from colleagues about the Romans and about the nations and and all these problems that are always somewhere else out there. And that was normal for them. And then Jesus called them together. A whole bunch of fishermen, hardworking, kind of Popeye types, you know, they just didn't hold back. They let it out, say it as it is, real people who are used to working hard and, and, and really giving of themselves in that. And then Jesus brought in Simon the Zealot, just to mix things up maybe, I don't know. But Simon the Zealot was called the Zealot for two reasons. One, because his first name was Simon, and so everyone was called Simon, so he needed a nickname. And so the, the nickname, the Zealot, was because somehow he was connected to the Zealots, And the zealots were this group of kind of nationalistic terrorists who would, at any chance they got, they'd pull out their dagger, jump out from behind a rock, kill a Roman just for fun, and then slip away again and celebrate together. The zealots were literally a movement of terrorists. And Jesus pulled one of them in. I don't know if he was, you know, kind of active or if it was like he looked like one or if he cracked a joke once. I don't know how zealot he was, but let's, let's give him the benefit of the doubt. Simon the zealot probably was one. And then Jesus pulled in a tax collector <laughs> just for, you know, just for a laugh. And so he pulled in a tax collector who knew the inner workings of the Roman system because he had been protected by it. And I cannot imagine for the life of me that as those men gathered around uh, in the evenings after Jesus had done his stuff, maybe after Jesus had gone to bed and they're sitting around the campfire or, or sitting around the dinner table if they were staying with someone or, or sitting beside the lake, I cannot imagine that they didn't talk about Israel and the hope that one day the Messiah would come and set them free and deliver them from Rome. And throw off this occupying force and this vicious taxation system that was so heavy and oppressive. They must have talked about that. They must have got stories out of Simon that made the tax collector feel a little bit awkward on the other side of the fire. They must have had uh, some of the jokes from the fishermen. They must have had that kind of uh, interaction as a group. And gradually, over the next three years, as they traveled with Jesus and as they watched Jesus, gradually they came to realize that Jesus isn't just some kind of impressive rabbi. Jesus is the Messiah. He's the one that, that our grandfather and our fathers told us about. He's, could this be him? And, and they would have expected him to rise up and lead the charge and throw off the enemies and establish the kingdom. And yet during the course of those three years, time and time and time again, Jesus messed with their minds. For instance, right after he started He'd done a few miracles uh, down in Capernaum. He headed back up to Nazareth. And he got up to Nazareth and went into the synagogue, and the scroll of Isaiah the prophet was handed to him. And he unrolled the scroll to chapter 61, as we would call it. And he read these words. No need to turn to it, but it's in Luke 4, for your memory. He read these words, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me. He has messiahed me. That's what that means. To proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he stopped. And the people there were, they're fixed on him. They're looking at him. They're going, no, 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 you can't stop there. Finish the sentence, Jesus. Because after that comma, if they had such things, the next bit of the sentence would have been to talk about God's judgment. 
And then they would have wanted him to carry on because just a few verses later in Isaiah 61 verses 7 to 11, it really rips into the Gentiles. I mean, there's coming a day when Israel is going to be getting fat off the wealth of the Gentiles. And they would have loved that stuff. And Jesus presents this, I'm anointed and I'm going to do nice things. And he doesn't go after the Gentiles. And so that created some consternation in that room. They, They got a bit touchy with that. And it could be translated that they were really impressed. It could be equally translated that they went, "Uh uh-oh, this isn't appropriate. And so they asked a probing question just to see where he stood, just to make sure they hadn't misunderstood. Maybe Jesus was just making the mistake of a young preacher and forgetting half his message. And he said to them, let me give you two examples. And he quotes from the Old Testament about Elijah. He says, let's talk about Elijah's time. Three and a half years, no rain. Who did God send Elijah to? No one in Israel sent him to a widow at Zarephath, a Gentile. And then just to make it absolutely clear what he was saying, that God was doing something beyond Israel, not just Israel. Then he says, think about Elisha. In Elisha's day, there were loads of lepers in Israel. But it was Naaman the Syrian that Elisha healed. It made them so mad that they dragged him out of that place, took him to the brow of the hill. They were going to throw him off the cliff because he was being so nice to the Gentiles. And Jesus walked through the crowd because it wasn't time yet. But that would have lodged in their minds and in their hearts of these these disciples as they walked with Jesus and as they saw him in action and as they heard reports if they weren't there on the day. You go to Matthew chapter 8, and there's this set of of miracles that Jesus does that just rocks their world. He he touches a leper, which is kind of freaky. You don't want to do that, but at least it was a Jewish leper. So, you know, he touches a leper and heals him. He touches Peter's mother-in-law and raises her up when she was ill. But in between, there's a story of a centurion walking up. Full Roman soldier garb, right? The authentic deal. He walks up to Jesus and he says, my servant is is lying in bed paralyzed. He's suffering terribly. Please do something. I don't know what's going on in the minds and the hearts of the disciples, but I suspect that what they're thinking, maybe even what they're muttering under their breath, is good. Hope your servant dies a horrible death and I hope you catch it too and your whole family and your whole army and get out of our country. And they would have had that we hate Romans kind of response. And you know what Jesus does? He says, okay, where'd you live? And he goes to go to his house. To go to his house? You can't do that, Jesus. You crazy? In fact, it's the centurion that stopped him. Centurion said, you don't need to come to my house. Just say the word. I've got authority. People obey me. You've got authority. Come on. We're men under authority. I understand how it works. Just say the word. And then Jesus, just to make it worse, doesn't just heal this guy's servant. He praises the centurion in front of all his disciples. He says, I tell you what, I have not seen someone with faith like this man in all of Israel. Bet the disciples love that. What, what, Jesus, what about us? And he says, no, 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 this man has faith, this Gentile. And they couldn't quite get their heads around it, but Jesus wanted them to know that this whole Gentile thing, this whole nation's thing, this is part of who he is. It just keeps coming up time and again, even if they don't get it. 
They've got to get it ultimately because that's the kind of God that Jesus is representing. That's what his father's heart is, just, is like. And, and Jesus is showing us the father's heart. Way back in the Old Testament, you've got this passage in Isaiah where, where God is speaking to the servant, the Messiah. And he says to him, it's too small a thing for you to restore the tribes of Jacob. I'm going to make you a light to the nations. And Jesus was living that out. And gradually, as the three years went on, the disciples were experiencing time and again how Jesus messed with them by loving Gentiles. He does things that they would never expect and treats it as if it's normal and as if it's, as if it's what God would want. And they're coming to terms with God's heart and their racism, with God's heart for the nations and their selfishness. They, they weren't very bright, but that's okay because we're not very bright, so we can relate to that, right? So the disciples took a long time to learn that lesson. There was one time when they went through uh, Samaria. Normally they'd avoid Samaria to go up north, but Jesus led them right the way up through Samaria, and he stopped at this well in, uh, near Sychar. And he said to the disciples, I'm hungry. And so they went off looking for like a kebab joint or a burger joint or something in town. And they're all off. And Jesus is by the well. And this woman comes out, middle of the day, scorching heat. And he has this conversation with this woman. And the disciples come back. And there's Jesus talking to this Samaritan woman. And they're like, what in the world's going on? Well, she's finding the whole thing awkward. So she heads into the village and tells everybody that will listen, whether they'll listen or not, come meet a man who told me everything I did. Could this be the Messiah? And the whole village come out to Jesus. And Jesus is there teaching and speaking to all these people. And the disciples would have been involved. They were there two days, it tells us. And so they would have been answering questions for these Samaritans. And they, were, they, would, they would have been saying, well, one time I heard him tell this story. You know, oh, let me see if I can remember. Matthew, have you got your notebook? Yeah, Thanks. Oh, that's how it starts. So there was this man, and he had 100 sheep. And they would have been telling the stories, and they would have been ministering to these Samaritans, the despised ones. And after two days, the, the village say to the woman who, who came back and did the whole uh, thing, they, they say, hey, listen, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe in him. We've heard for ourselves that he is the savior of the world. And the disciples were probably there going, yeah, what, even Samaritans? After two days of ministry, I don't know if they got it. But Jesus was showing them that he's a God who reaches out. He's representing his father whose heart is the heart of a missionary to care for all the nations, even the despised ones. Remember the feeding of the 5,000? 5,000 men plus women plus children by the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus says, feed them. And the disciples go, you're crazy. We can't feed them. Well, what have you got? And then Andrew finds the little boy with his packed lunch. And they say, well, we've got this, five loaves and two fish. And Jesus says, okay. And he takes it and he prays. And then he says, give it out. And they give it out. And 5,000 plus women plus children are absolutely stuffed. And then they, they pick up the pieces and bring back the 12 baskets full. And they go, whoa, that was more than we started with. Remember that story? Fast forward a few verses, like a chapter in Mark's gospel to Mark chapter 8. And there's Jesus and there's a crowd of people, 4,000 people. And they're so hungry. And they're three days' journey from the nearest food. So it's not like, let's pop to the shop. Like they were in trouble. They were going to die if they left. And Jesus said, what food have we got? 
And they said, I don't know, uh, had a look, and they had seven loaves and some fish. So that's more food, less people, more serious situation. And Jesus goes, and they're like, what are we going to do? We've got no idea. You go, come on, boys. Like, don't you remember, like, Mark 6? Like, this is Mark 8. Come on. And they just don't get it. And Jesus says, give me the food, takes the food, prays for it, blesses it, says, give it out. They start giving it out. And then at some point, they must have triggered, like, come on, seriously. They must have realized, haven't we done this before? Now, either they are the densest men on the entire planet, because there's some dense men around, but no one's that dense, right? You don't perform a miracle and then forget and then perform it again. And then, you know, the issue was where they were. The first time, it was on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. It was on the Jewish side. This time, it was on the Gentile side. They were in the Decapolis, 10 cities of Gentiles. And it did not cross their minds that the Jewish Messiah would want to feed Gentiles. You see, the reason they didn't get it wasn't because they were dense. It was because they were racist. It's because they were, technical term, ethnocentric. They were kind of curved in on their own type. And they weren't reaching out globally because they hadn't quite been gripped with God's global going missionary kind of heart. But it must have had an impact because these things happen so many times through the Gospels. We've got, I've told you a story from Matthew, a couple of stories from Mark. I've told you a story from Luke. Uh, I've told you one from John. They're, they're in all the Gospels. One time when Jesus is coming towards Jerusalem, uh, a couple of, or a group of Greek people come up and they find Philip, because he's got a Greek name, and they say, ah, Philip, you're saying Greek. We've got a favor to ask. Could we see Jesus? We want to see Jesus. And so Philip asks Andrew, and the two of them come up to Jesus and say, Jesus, there's these Greeks. They would like to see you. And Jesus starts going off about farming and seeds and planting and dying and then sprouting. And, and they're like, what? Yeah, okay, but, but the Greeks, Jesus... And then Jesus starts getting all, all sorrowful and troubled and praying. And then, and then like there's the voice from heaven. I mean, it's a really kind of distracting thing that's going on. All this stuff's happening. And they keep going, <clears throat> yeah, the Greeks. And Jesus keeps on going with his seminar on farming and talking to God and stuff. And eventually, after talking about death and so on, eventually he says, when the Son of Man is lifted up, then he will draw all people to himself. And now by this stage, they're on their way into Jerusalem. They're at the end of the three years. I think they're starting to grasp that this is serious. And certainly within a few days, having seen Jesus die on the cross, it would have made sense. Maybe after he rose from the dead, sometime in there, it clicked. And they would have gone, oh my goodness, when the Son of Man is lifted up, he will draw all people to himself, even Greeks, like even Samaritans, even like all foreigners. You see, it was a process over the course of three years where he was teaching them and getting through to them gradually, bit by bit, and eventually they would understand it. So when Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, they would have gone, yeah, we get that now. Therefore, go make disciples of all nations. Got it baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them, foreigners, to observe everything that I have commanded you. And they would have been like, wow, this is amazing. Who would have thought we would be standing here nodding at this? 
And they maybe looked at one another, maybe Matthew and Simon, you know, Levi, uh, sorry, tax collector and, and zealot. Maybe they gave each other a kind of a knowing little wink or something because Jesus had led them to this point. And he said, I'm with you always to the end of the age. And then they met up in Jerusalem and on the Mount of Olives, Jesus said, just wait, just wait in Jerusalem until you receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, then you will be my witnesses. Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And, and, and somewhere in there, it made sense. Because somewhere in there, God's heart had gripped theirs. Maybe it took longer than that. Maybe they were still scratching their heads for 11 days in Jerusalem saying, Holy Spirit, come on you for what? Witnesses, huh? That sounds like Isaiah. We don't get it. Whatever it was, eventually they got it because they spread out across the world and they took the message to all nations. Jesus got through to them. And you know what? I'm glad that they didn't get it first time because I don't get it first time. I lose track of how many times Jesus has to teach me the same lessons. And maybe you're like me as well, that you you have to learn the same things more than once. But as you walk with Jesus, as you read your Gospels, you read your Bible and you watch him in action, what you'll find is not only does he perplex you and make you scratch your head, gradually you'll find that your heart starts to beat with his and what he values will start to rub off on you and you'll start to say, you know what? I care. I care about people that aren't like me. I I care about people that don't know Jesus and and don't know God. I care about the things that I see on the news. And I never used to care. What's going on with me? What's going on with you? Is that when you spend time with Jesus, his heart rubs off on yours. And God's global, reaching beyond himself, extravagant, sacrificial love starts to bubble up inside you and you start to go you know what, there's a missionary offering, I'm going to give. If it's going to make a difference, I'm going to give. And I'm not just going to give, you know, give. I'm going to give, like proper give. Like, I can't afford this because I gave give. And you do it not because you feel guilted into it, but because there's something rising up inside. And you say, you know what, I I used to tune out missionary reports and news and things, but I'm going to start praying. I don't mean just like pray, bless the missionaries, pray. I'm going to pray, pray. You know, like like actually stop and miss a TV show kind of pray. I'm going to to find out about things. I'm going to say, you know what, I've got a slight interest in the Turkmenistan country or whatever. I'm going to find out where that is and I'm going to start praying for it. I'm going to pray for Africa or Asia or, you know, wherever. I'm going to find out about missionaries and organizations. Not all of them. It's overwhelming. But I'm going to find out about something, and I'm going to start praying as if it matters because I'm starting to be convinced it does. And maybe we as a church, as we spend time with Jesus, and this value comes not from a list of values but from reading God's Word, maybe we as a church will find within our collective heart a growing desire to send Okay, you know what? We've got Elliot on the ship. Let's encourage him. Let's write to him. Let's communicate with him. Let's pray for him. Let's tell him we're praying for him. You know, let, let's do what we can for him. But that's not enough. We want more. And it's easy to pray for God to bring more here. But as we spend time with Jesus, maybe we'll find our hearts stirred to pray that God would send more from here. Wouldn't it be great to be a giving, praying, sending church? 
Wouldn't it be great, not to, to kind of toot our own horn or anything like that, but wouldn't it be great if, if, if maybe, uh, if nobody notices, that's fine, but maybe in the heavenly realms, maybe if the angels are talking to one another, maybe wouldn't it be cool if one of them said, oh, you know that new church that meets near the swimming pool in Chippenham? Oh, yeah, I've heard about that. That's a bit weird. They're so extravagant. They're so sacrificial in their giving and in their praying and in their sending. Do you know how many missionaries they've sent? No, tell me. You're kidding. Wouldn't it be cool if that conversation happened in the heavenly realms because God stirred something within us? And if we're going to be a sending church, then maybe that means some of us are going to go. And where you go, you know what? I used to be scared of getting on the ferry to France. You find yourself on a plane to who knows where to learn a language you've never heard before, to, to bring the good news of Jesus to people that you haven't met, but you already love because God's love stirs something within you. Wouldn't it be great if God raised up within our community a shared passion for the world, shared amongst ourselves, but shared with his heart? a shared passion for the world that leads us to pray and to give and to send and to go and to do whatever we can so that as we gather here in Little Chippenham, the ministry that we're involved in, by God's power, the power of his love, makes a huge impact locally and a huge impact globally that changes the face of eternity. Wouldn't that be something? And it's not that we can muster it. It's not that we can strategize it or that we can achieve it. It's something that comes when our hearts start to beat with his. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you so much for the Gospels. And as we read the Gospels and see these stories that we've touched on this afternoon, thank you that they reveal Jesus to us. And we thank you that as we look at Jesus, he reveals your heart to us. And Lord, as a group of Gentiles on the other side of the planet, we just sit here and from our hearts say thank you for being a missionary God. Thank you that your heart reaches out beyond yourself to people like us. And it's our prayer that we would see Jesus more clearly and that that would stir within us more deeply a love that reaches not only to Chippenham, but to the end of the, the, end of the earth to people that we've never met and we will never meet until eternity, but people you love and people you died for. Grip us. Grip us with your love, we pray, and stir it within us. In Jesus' name, amen.